podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Boom, we're on. And today's guest, we've got Anthony Malone. Anthony, how are you, brother? I'm good, my friend. I'm good. And you? Yeah, really good, thanks. Great to see you. Mad story. You were captured by the Taliban. 190 days. You were a paratrooper. Being tortured. Your wife was speaking to the Taliban. Um, very fascinating story. Lucky to be alive, but I'm just glad you're here to tell the tale today. Nice. Thank you for that. Yeah, it was... Uh Definitely an e emotional experience. I believe that was one way of putting it. Um, yeah, the evacuation. Um, everyone's seen it on the television about the evacuation. It's the it's the year anniversary now, and my myself and a few other veterans, we decided to do a self funded humanitarian mission to Afghanistan um, before, during, and after the evacuation. To, to try and help get as many people out as what we could. Before we get into everything, I always go back to the start with my guests. Where you grew up and how it all began? Happy days. <laughs> Where did you grow up, brother? I grew up in Stockton-on-Tees and half-east of England. How was that? How was your upbringing? It was good. Um, great family, close family. I'm a fifth-generation soldier. Um, done quite well at school, I was good at sport. So yeah, I, I actually had a really good upbringing. So family history of being in the Paras? Uh, uncle in the Paras, my dad was in the army, my granddad was in the, in, in the army artillery, my great-granddad was in the army as well. So it's, your cards were basically laid out for you as a kid, do you think? Pretty much so, yeah. yeah. What were you like at school? I was right at school. I was quiet, um, good, good at art and sports, not really... Ac academic as in it, I wasn't really interested in in school for want of a better word it wasn't until I left school that I realized how important uh, education is why did you start learning that then um I was in the military so I, I wanted to do um languages I wanted to do com computer courses I just wanted to better myself academically I was a member of the parachute regiment, so I, I, I'd already proven that I was a good soldier, a good rifleman. Um, I had my British wings, my French wings, um, done tours in Northern Ireland, fortunate enough to um, experience um, some things in Africa and across Europe as well. So to match my soldiering skills, I wanted to become academically quite spot on as well. So what age did you join the Paras? I, I actually first joined the parachute regiment for power when I was 17 and a half. So I joined the TA. I was quite young. Technically, I don't think I was supposed to have joined at that age because I managed to pass P Company down at Aldershot and I got my wings before I was eight, 18. But I wasn't allowed to wear my wings, even though I had already passed Aria Prize Norton until I was actually 18. What does it take to get your wings? What do you need to do? Um, well, the parachute wings, uh, pass peak company. Then you go to RAF, RAF, Prize Norton, and you train on a four-week course with the RAF. So you throw yourself out of a perfectly serviceable aircraft, which is great fun. And at that time, we used to do our first jump out of a balloon as well. 
but that now has stopped, I think. What's it like jumping out the plane yourself for the first time? Um, my my personal opinion, I thought it was excellent. I thought it was great. Um, I've done over 100 jumps now. I thought it was great. But any risks at any time? Some people's, I know some people's wires can get crossed. And Yeah, there was only one bad incident when I was in four power and I ended up coming down through someone else's frigging lines. So I actually ended up coming down with a container on me um, nearly upside down at that time. So I managed to jettison my container, get get myself freed up. So at least I was coming down feet first. Yeah, so the paras are mad. My L, my family member, he was in the paras, but he was a fucking nutcase. He was always fighting and causing it. And yeah, he was he was mad. And I used to think, that take some balls, because I'd done a skydive in Dubai, but I was strapped onto someone and I was still shaking myself. How many jumps do you need to do before you can do it yourself? I think uh, oh the um, in the normal battalions or airborne forces you jump static so you don't have to jump up and pull yourself uh, as soon as you exit the 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 aircraft on a static line it's an automatic pull um, a, a lot of people go on to do more specialised courses which is obviously the uh, free falling course as well. Mm-hmm. So the Paris then, what, where was your first tour? Northern Ireland? Yeah, my me, me first operational tour was Northern Ireland in the early 90s. Uh, I was there in Cookstown. Um, Six-month emergency tour. Um, good experience, incredible bunch of guys that I was with. Great life experience as well, because I was still quite young at that time. I was fortunate enough to be so surrounded with a lot of guys who were a lot older than me. And I've always got a rule, if you if you want to learn, learn off the best in your field. And I actually learned a lot from a lot of the older guys in the regiment. What was Northern Ireland like in the 90s? Was the tr- troubles were kind of easing off about then? It calmed down a lot. Um, it was a very sad tour because... One of the guys had been hit by um, an explosive device and he, he, he was injured and we actually lost two of our two of our guys, two members of the uh, third battalion parachute regiment on the last day of the tour. So as we were all due home, we actually found out that we lost two of our guys there. Is that the first time you'd lost anyone close? Um, in battalion, no. Um, it's a job. But it doesn't matter, um, even if you know them a little bit or you know you know them well. To those guys, it's it's hard. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so seeing you lose someone for the first time who's close to you, like, does that make you more angry, or does it just understand that this is a job you're going to lose people? It's just you just need to get on with it. From my experience, you being have a professional soldier or we're working within the intelligence community of freelance you always lose people um i'm one of the one of the very fortunate ones that i've spent 32 years working in military and hostile environments 22 of them has been on and off in afghanistan and iraq and i've lost 28 close friends of mine and i would say i never got angry but it focused me and it made my job not a job at that point. It made it very personal. So 
I wasn't just doing a job and then going home. My life was my job. So I worked my job for many, many years, 24-7, in like, like Iraq, Syria, Saudi, and Afga Afghanistan. Could you ever switch off when you came home? Um, to answer that one, I never came home. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was actually in Iraq for, I think it was a three-year period. And the R&R that I went on... Um, was actually in Kurdistan. So on my two weeks oh, like break at that, when I was working in the private security industry, all I did was I stayed in country because I didn't want to go too far in case anything happened. And I was involved in a lot of things in the, um, in the private security industry and within the intelligence community as well. So to be in country for three years was a hell of a thing. Was that a tough decision or was it just you didn't want to come home? Like it was easy decision because some of my close friends had been killed and I was helping to basically bring to justice the people who had killed them. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Where did you go after Northern Ireland? Um, but back to the powers in Northern Ireland. I think we we um, after I done my tour actually in uh, in Ireland, that was when I came out of the powers. And I ended up doing a load of private security work. That that was when I started to work in like across Africa, the the uh, the continent, and I started to cut me teeth in the Middle East as well. What was Africa like? I thought it was great. Um, Friendly. I, I actually found it good. Yeah, uh, I done work in South Africa, in Western East East Africa as as well. Um, places like Sierra Leone, Somalia. Um, South Africa, so I actually found it great. But again, I was, I was hungry to to actually learn, and I was still quite young at that point. So I was able to learn. Like in South Africa, I was being taught a lot of my tr trade craft by former Sealy Scouts. So I was, it was great because I was learning. I learned a lot in the British Army, but from a combat point of view. And from a tradecraft point of view, you're always able to learn more. So I was very lucky to come across some older guys who would take me under their wing and t teach me. Was there much conflict in Africa? Um, at that point, yeah. Was there? Um, we, yeah. You, yeah. Somalia's always been a hostile, a hostile environment with several wars and conflict. You had several play on was kicking off at that point as well um so yeah africa's always going to have a war or two it's just it, it is africa or as as a lot of the um the Af africans boys always tell me this is africa mm -hmm. um but it was um it was a humbling experience as well because being from the united kingdom where we have running water we have a supermarket around the corner we take a lot for granted to actually see how people live in vi villages that don't have electricity or running water. It really makes you appreciate what you've got. Yeah, yeah. because uh, you've seen the films and that, but you don't know how far-fetched it is. Like Africa is very, it's such a third world country. Like, is, there, is it just all poverty? No, no, you've got, um, you've, it's, it's a bit like any, anywhere else in your world. You've got your good and your bad. You've got your affluent areas and you've got your, um, your townships and, and that as, as well. Africa, 
It's a very different mentality. It, what, what I found out is every country that I've operated in, and I've operated on pretty much every continent on, on, on this planet, every area has got its, its own tra traditions and culture. And if you're going to operate in any area, in any country, you've got to know and understand and learn the culture. You've got to, you've got to know and understand what you can do, what you can not do. And if you get to know the local population, it makes your job a lot easier. Um, so I think what the mistake that a lot of people from the West make when they go into a lot of these countries, they don't take the, their time to do the background, the research, or due diligence. And I've always, I've never been into a country and done a quick job, even in Africa or the Middle East. I generally spend a couple of a couple of years on each task. And some of them obviously ex expanded to a lot longer. What was the Somalians like? Because obviously, I know I've had a couple of guys on who worked in the ships, mm. protecting them, and it's the, the pirates would just come on and take people hostage, steal the ships. Did you ever come across any of them? We came across some um, some of the bad guys, for one of a, of a different word. To them, you do get an extremist, extremist element, like with Al-Shabaab and other groupings over there. But people have got to realise as well, to a lot of the locals, being a pirate is a job as well. There's nothing else out there. Or they might have to become a pirate or do the work that they do. Because if they don't, the pirate groupings, the tribans, would actually take it out on the family. So a lot of them, some of them that I've actually met, don't want to do the job, but they've got to. Because if they don't, repercussions on the families. But then you've got your more extremist element that is thrown in in there as well. The pirateering and all that is it's it's organised crime for want of a better word on it. It's all about the the money. Can they get the ransom? Can they get the ship? So it's a lot of it. I would say a good chunk of it's financially motivated. Uh, did it get sometimes get the money? Um, yeah. Did it? Yeah. What about Africa? Where did you go after that? Uh, after my time in Africa, spent a little bit of time in Cyprus, then started to cut my teeth into Lebanon and Syria. What was Syria not like? Syria, then it was interesting. Um, it's always been a very di diverse country. Uh, I've spent quite a bit of time in Syria, um, commercially Delazar, Damascus, Aleppo, and... I was going through all of the all of the areas that in a few year a few years forward from that point would actually become all these strong strongholds for ISIS. Yeah. So you could sort of feel something was was there, but it wasn't quite extremism yet, but it was actually there. Do you just get a heads up that there's going to be more like, like ISIS and that? Does there, because they just came out of nowhere? Did they know that? Like, do you just get there's, there's going to be a new? Mm but a evil coming toward to try and... We could spot it a mile away. I actually wrote a re re report about four, four years, five years, um, before ISIS even existed. And a lot of this stems back to the Iraq war. The mis mistakes were made. The coalition won the war against Saddam Hussein, but they... L lost the peace. 
they sh should have included, and they were told categorically by including a member, senior members of the um, American intelligence, including the CIA station chief in Iraq at the time, that if you do not include senior members of the former Iraq military, special forces, and their intelligence services, they will break away and they will make or start to put together a resistance and that will be a highly motivated, highly trained and financially supported resistance. That was key in ISIS. Because if you look at the top 20 military commanders in ISIS, nearly all of them had served in the military or some form within the intelligence services of the Saddam Hussein. And if we had brought them into the fold and offered them a job, or be part of the Iraqi army, you can't just cut all these people away. And the politicians did not listen to the military advisors on the ground. Um, and if they, if they had done, then ISIS would not exist in the format that it is actually now. Did the killing of Saddam Hussein start that? I believe it wasn't just the killing of Saddam Hussein. It was the fact the Americans and the coalition forces went into Iraq and they got the government, how they formed the government and the people they didn't include in it. That was the foundations for the, res the resistance. Why was Saddam killed? Was it they try to get weapons of mass destruction, but they didn't find weapons. Is that true? I what? didn't see anything on that. I was I, I was in Iraq, in a western desert of Iraq, before the war had started. I was back and forth a lot. We didn't see anything. We did see and come across a lot of battlefield chemical weapons, uh, but they were not what people would would class as WMD. I personally did not see or photograph anything in there that. That could be classed as it. So the pretense of going to war for the WMD, not not there. How does that make you feel then? So many men lost their life there as well. If there was, what were they fighting for? I think the next time we go to war as a country, I think some of the politicians should be in the front of that because politicians make decisions back in their homes or in parliament they're detached. Um, I also think, and it's been acknowledged, um, our intelligence services could have done a better job then. They've acknowledged that. L lessons have been learned. Let's just hope those lessons are, it, it, are implemented in the future. There seems to be a lot of wars just now, if no more than ever. Like, do you think there'll be a World War Three, possibly with Britain involved? Uh, I think Britain's... Britain will be involved in um, conflicts in the future. Um, it's quite worrying what's going on in Af Afghanistan now, at this moment in time, and obviously the Ukraine as well. But people have got to remember, the British military is not as big as what it was 20 years ago. Why? Uh, budget cuts, politicians deciding that we don't need a bigger... Navy, military, or Air Force. So I'm hoping that our military doesn't get caught any more than what it is now. Who's the strongest now, China and Russia? That's a difficult one. Um, we're not one of the strongest. Um, See, we, I always thought we were. We are the best. We are one of the best. 
but don't forget our armed forces has shrunk beyond belief because of budget cuts. And if we had an armed forces that was twice as big as what we have now, and of the same quality as what we have now, that would be an incredible armed forces. And our armed forces is very, very special, every aspect of it. But there's, if you look at the size of China's army, or even the Americans, if you look how many aircraft they have, tanks, ships, troops, and you compare that to what our fighting forces, not our reserve force or support force, what our main battle grouping is, it is quite small. So hopefully our politicians won't drag us into any more wars. And if they do, we shouldn't be following any other country into war either. We need to stand on our two feet. We've just went through over 20 years of knowing war, Iraq, Afghanistan. Every soldier pretty much in the British military and all the services has seen some kind of operational tour. So it'd be, it'd be nice if we had a period of time where we do, do not have to send all of our troops over to um, a combat zone. Obviously, that ex is excluding special forces because our special forces are the best in the world and they're pretty much going to be working in every war zone on, on, on going as well. Could Great Britain ever be invaded? Um, I don't know. I hope not. Scary question, Eric. I always thought Britain mm. were one of the strongest for some reason. It must just be the special forces, like you say, as the elite of the elite. Like we've got some f phenomenal soldiers, but again, it doesn't beat 100,000, 200,000. I don't know how many China has, but I know if they've got to, I think everybody's got to do some military experience in China. Is that correct? Um, I think it is, yeah. I think a lot, a lot of people do. It wouldn't be a bad thing because of the amount of unemployment that we actually have in this country it wouldn't be a bad thing if people had to do a year's national service i know that's a political hot hot potato but it would really help a lot of the young ones because it would teach them when they come out how to school some basic life skills how to look look after themselves and it would give them a bit of pride in the country. And it would give, this is important, it will give them pride in themselves as well. Because we've got a lot of unemployment in this country yeah. now. So national service could be, be an option. The world would be a great place if there wasn't any wars, any conflicts. But it's just the way we, we, we are now. Like you say, the politicians pull the strings. Like, how do you separate who the bad guys are? If it's politicians pulling the strings and just causing uproar for then sending troops to then fight sometimes for for nothing basically well not for nothing but they're obviously making money behind it like how do you then make that decision like what the fuck is it about yeah it's it's very difficult i've been down the rabbit hole i've seen politics i've seen war um it's a very it's a very it's, it's an interesting question but from a personal point of view war is a dirty thing politics are dirty but a lot of money can be made in war um example the afghan war two trillion dollars was spent in afghanistan and it ain't in afghanistan 
the roads, the infrastructure still hasn't been sorted out in Afghanistan. So where did that two trillion go? Um, if people were to look into that, they'll find a massive percentage of it went into people's bank accounts, into private companies. The security industry in 2000, 2002, um, it, then it was quite small. It was a niche kind of kind of market. The pay was good then as well. So if you were an operator then, you knew that you, you were going to be on good money. Um, example for that, we, we were on about £1,000 a day over there, um, if not more. Now you'd be lucky. I've, I've known guys to go out there for £120 a day now. Um, would you really want to risk your life? Plus, I think now the risk is actually real. If you go out now to the Middle East and do to do uh, private security work out there, or uh, as you mentioned before, if you do the maritime security, the wages now are not good. Um, so people have got to, got to ask themselves, is it worth getting a life-changing injury? Is it worth being caught, um, tortured or killed? For 120 a day, yeah, no. Yeah, definitely not. I, that's my my opinion. Mm -hmm. But I think we, we're going to see a slight change in the industry now because I think a lot of the guys who thought they could go out there on bravado or egos, and I've seen this myself, I've seen guys get, get off a plane, you know, the bodybuilding types who are always in like the gym, a couple of years military experience, if that. They've gone out there with an ego, Within a couple of weeks, they've seen the the uh, the colleagues being killed. They're getting shot at every day. Um, there is a massive risk that they're going to get injured or maimed or killed. I've seen these guys on six month contracts after two weeks, put in the papers and gone. They don't want to be there because the risk of the job now out there it is real. Mm -hmm. yeah. What about Gaddafi? Why was he killed? <sighs> Gaddafi is is an interesting one um should he have been killed and over and overthrown i'm not going to comment on that i think that was a very political political move mistakes were made there like i said mistakes were made in syria iraq and libya but now now we've got to deal with the blowback of or basically the problems that western countries have caused by getting involved I believe it's like an example Afghanistan. It's an Afghan solution to an Afghan problem. I think Libya as well. It needs to be a Libyan solution to a Libyan problem. The West cannot get involved because we are outsiders. doesn't matter how much good goodwill we actually have. You've got to leave these countries to themselves to be governed in, in, internally. We can help, we can advise, we can mentor, but we cannot have any more boots on the ground because as soon as we do put boots on the ground in any, any of these countries, all the tribal systems in that country then who are fighting each other will unite together and we are seen as the outsiders and we are seen as the enemy. So Western guys then become targets and that has become apparent throughout every Middle East country. And every time the West removes a dictator, it doesn't go well. Every country we have re removed the dictator, 
it ends up going into a war. A lot of civilian casualties, a lot of people who were innocent are killed, and the the that country's economy then spirals out of con control. So I'm a strong believer, and I can say this, that armed conflict should be a last re resort, not a first resort to remove a dictator. There's always other options that people can put on the table. Mm -hmm. I like that way of thinking, all that being a soldier yourself and when did you start seeing that though that obviously a lot of people who start were there for a job were here by british but when you're getting orders to go to another country and potentially kill other people even though you're saying like you are the enemy because you're going to another country when did you start opening your eyes and realizing that there's something just not quite right here i started to say it i saw it in africa a little bit in africa but i really started seeing it in 2002 because what the media were reporting what was going on in Iraq and Afghanistan was not accurate, was not real. I was on the ground. I saw it. Mark, one eyeball. I, I, I don't go on what people tell me or what I read because a lot of the time, anything on the internet or in the press is crap anyway. But what I was seeing in real time wasn't matching what the British public were being told. And that really opened my, my actual eyes. And the amount of things that were happening that were not being re reported on, um, there's a million and one things I can say that is not public, but I'm obviously not. But that opened my eyes to always think out the box and look for the backstory in every situation. If there's a problem, look behind it, see why there's a problem, what caused it. And I find it interesting because it's never what anyone ever ever th th thinks it is. Well, manip the media manipulate the, the minds of the humans. That, is that to then manipulate the humans so much that they then think it's okay to invade other countries with lies, deceit, and people accept that it's is okay at the end of the day i believe we're all human i see everybody as an individual it's easier for me to say though i've i've stayed in scotland my whole life it's never been invaded i've never had conflict there but if someone tried to come to my country then i'd be the first one to grab a rifle and try and protect the ones that i love like mm. do you think it's easy to control the, the population with media to then accept that what people do in other countries i think i think a lot of the the media including social media at a government level. I think that much misinformation is put out there now. I think people are now, it's not like 2002 when Tony Blair went, we're going to evade Iraq because of WMD. We all know that that, that was not true. He's even admitted it, basically. But the media jumped on it. I think now, if the media was to hype up a country, hype up a threat, I think the public now and the politicians will be very reluctant and wary to jump on it. Because I think now the public step back and ask the question, is this true? Yes, it's a sensational headline, war and all that. Do we have to? Is it true? What's the objective? What really are we going after? The British public now asks the questions, what are we doing now? 
because they've been told things that aren't true for that long by senior politicians reference Iraq and Afghanistan. People are questioning it. The media should still take responsibility and check the sources, make sure what they're being told is stood up. Having people who are very in bed in the media with government officials is a red flag. The media should be independent. So if a member of the government happens to leak a story to a member of the press, that doesn't necessarily mean it should be put in the news. It needs to be checked. Does it stand up? Are the politicians using the media for their own game? Um, I actually know. I won't want to mention it, but I know two journalists who are so in bed with politicians that have a question mark on them, I actually wouldn't believe a single story of either of these journalists if they ever released anything. Um, <clears throat> and these are two very well-known individuals who are on the main news channels an awful lot, and it's been proven time and time again, a lot of the stuff what they're re reporting on. So sorry to say that, but it's absolute crap. Do you think we would ever get the truth, though? Even though there's so many question marks arising everywhere over, like Tony Blair and people saying he's got blood in his hands, and would they ever come forward and admit that? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, with the the media is so powerful. There's only a certain amount of there's only a few families who run the, the world's media. Oh yeah, it is. It's manipulated. Yeah. Uh, if you try to go up against the organisations, they I've I've actually had a, you, you must probably know people have done it as well. You try and make a stand against a government department or a media organisation, they have got the power to trash your name. Problem they've got now is. When they try and discredit any a, anybody, people are now stepping back and asking why. And I'm seeing a lot of that now on social media. A lot of people get tr trolled. A lot of people do. We actually tr tracked down a couple of the people who were trying to troll me at one point and some of my other colleagues who were quite well-known public figures as well. Turned out these people were being paid by other people to troll and discredit. So this wasn't a random act. This was actually a very well thought out planned trolling campaign against some of my celebrity friends and they were trying to discredit them. But we actually found out who they were and we put an end to all of that as well. Then we found out who had paid them. That was very interesting. So there is a connection between politics, some of the journalism, and tr tr trolling as well. So if people want to discredit anybody, what better way than use social media? So people need to be very careful in what they read. Also, I think the laws in this country should come back in line with what they have over in America you can be prosecuted and held accountable for what you write on social media in America. That needs to be put into law in this country mm -hmm. because there's young girls who get bullied and trolled every day and some of them are driven to suicide, which is wrong. Yeah. So people need to be held accountable. So you go from the full top of the spectrum, the politics, all the way down to young kids being trolled and bullied. Mm -hmm. It's all social media. A lot of it's connected to the press as well. 
So if there's any good investigative journalists out there, that is a story you might want to have a look at. What do you think of Donald Trump? He's... Half of me likes him, and the other half doesn't. He is a businessman, he is a politician, and he knows how to make headlines. Good or bad, he can make headlines. He supported and does support the American Armed Forces beyond belief. He will move mountains for his men, and I've seen it. Um, so as a commander-in-chief in of the of the American services, I think he was good. As a politician, I think some of his decisions were questionable. Yeah, because I've seen a video on there, and that's why I asked, because he, he's very big on his servicemen, and I think he was talking about the wars there when they pulled the men out of Iraq. They left 800 billion worth of, or 80 billion worth of tanks, machinery, mm. helicopters, guns, like... <clears throat> But it was a waste of money in my eyes. It's, well, if if that was a, a rack, look at how many hundreds of millions was, was left in Af Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, the amount of equipment there is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. What do you think of the, tw the Twin Towers in, in Bin Laden? I think the decision to go after Al-Qaeda was the right one. The decision to hunt down by any means, Osama bin Laden was the right one. And I believe the drone strike in Kabul um, a couple of days ago was, was also the right decision. I think the timing of the last airstrike was questionable. They knew where the leader of Al-Qaeda has been for some time. So to kill him on the anniversary of the one year with the internal power struggle going on between the inside the Taliban and with the Haqqani network as well, I think it was the right decision to take him out, but the timing of it, I have a, I have a question mark on that. Twin Towers, it was one of the worst um, terrorist attacks, and we are very fortunate to have an incredible intelligence services um, in the United Kingdom and American intelligence. Everyone hears about the attacks that happen. No one or the public doesn't get to hear about the large number of attacks that are actually stopped. Because um, 99% of all the work our intelligence services do and British Americans is kept quiet and it's in the shadows and it's carried out by the nameless grey people in the background who just roll up the sleeves, work hard and stop the actual attacks. So I think everyone's focused on like the Twin Towers. There was other attacks just as big. That never happened. Yeah, what was the London one? Was it 7-7? Seven, seven? Yeah. And um, how does that make you feel though when something like that happens? Like you say, there is so many get caught that may, and even Glasgow, they try to do the airport when it's so close to home. Because when you see it in the news and it's other places, it doesn't seem as raw. But then when you see it in your own place, Glasgow, you start then questioning, fuck me, like how serious is this stuff? Like when you say there's a lot gets cut off, like when a big one does happen, how does that make you feel? Um, 
it, well, I'll be frank, it, um, it ups, upsets me. Um, I believe that the biggest threat the United Kingdom and the United States threat is terrorism now. Um, and the, the, some of these terrorist organisations have expanded into organised organized crime. So organised crime and terrorist organisations are now combined and they, they actually pose a very big threat. Um, an example, the Hezbollah, uh, Lebanese terrorist organisation. They are operational in Iraq, um, Af Af in Af Afghanistan. I've actually spoken to members of Hezbollah in Afghanistan. So if anyone says they're not there, um, no, you've got that one wrong. And Hezbollah are operational in, in England. Your viewers will be very interested to know that Hezbollah is not classed as a terrorist organisation in the United Kingdom. Why is that? No idea. But they can fly their flag in protests in London. I've been there, seen it. It, it happens. Um, and your viewers will be interested to know that Hezbollah, and this was very briefly in the Times, I, that I, I believe, a few years ago, they were going to set off two one-ton carb bombs in cities across the United Kingdom. And a tip-off to our intelligence services, and these locations were hit, the warehouse was actually hit, and the carb bombs were Found. These were big. These that would have been the biggest terrorist strike in the United Kingdom, but it was stopped. So it's like you said, pe people, the public don't generally get to to know, or if it's in the press, it's a little snippet. That big that, that would have been a huge strike against the United Kingdom. That should have been on the front front page. Mm -hmm. Straight after that, Hezbollah should have been classed as a terrorist organization. End of. In Parliament, bang, done. It's not. Mm -hmm. So my question is, why not? Organised crime and terrorist organisations like Hezbollah, the National Crime Agency, I've had um, many talks with senior people within National Crime Agency. Um, one of them was the former Deputy Director, uh, Roy. He's a friend of mine, very knowledgeable about human trafficking and about organised crime. Hezbollah is involved in, in all of it in the United Kingdom. Uh, but I'll let your viewers do their background on that one, but you'll find it very interesting. It's on the actual net. Type it in, organised crime, Hezbollah, United Kingdom. You'll get a lot of information there. Who funds these people? A lot of the funding of terrorist groups is now done through organised crime networks the human trafficking side of things. The human trafficking in the United Kingdom is a one billion a year industry. Not million, billion. And that's come from my contacts in the National Crime Agency. So that money is funneled back to terrorist, terrorist organisations. Um You've got the human trafficking side of things. You've got the used cars. They buy hundreds of thousands of used cars a year. Sell them in the UK. That money is then channeled back. So wherever you've got a terrorist group, 
look for organized crime around it. You will find it. Organized crime is how they fund it. Who has the biggest terrorist group? I think on a global scale, Hezbollah. Yeah, a lot of people don't know about them. A lot of people won't know anything about them because they are not written about an awful lot now. Um, Al-Qaeda, again, huge organization, multifaceted. The Haqqani network in Afghanistan is a global network. It isn't just in Afghanistan. So these government advisors, and I've actually met one, who told me that uh, the Akani network didn't have the ability to strike outside of Afghanistan. And he told me that back in 2010. Um, I told him he needs to go away and check his facts. Then I put a file in front of him, which was all the, basically, information that he needed to up update his viewpoint on it. Mm -hmm. Funny thing was, he actually took the information, wrote an official report and handed it in. So good, mm -hmm. good came of that. So see the terrorist groups that are in Britain mm. when they're killing innocent people, children, like, what's their method of thinking? Like, why? Like, I understand if the British army are in their country and they think they're invading them or killing them and it's tit for tat. Like, that's, like you say, you, you know what your job is for, but to come here and do it to innocent people who's not involved, like, what's their method of thinking to doing that? It's psychology. Um, it's to... Get to know your enemy, you need to understand your actual enemy. And I spent a long, many, many years living amongst these people. I actually spent three years in a maximum security prison in Afghanistan, Polish Sharky. And every day I was able to speak to and have contact with senior members of the Akani Network Taliban, Hezbollah, and Al-Qaeda. I was able to get into the mindset of these guys. This was when I, I, was, I, I was working pretty much undercover at that point with tacit approval from the American intelligence. And I was able to get into the psyche. And it's a very dark psyche to get into understanding your enemy to try and predict what they're going to do um they will kill an extremism some of the extremist groups like like al-qaeda and the psyche of a suicide bomber as, as well they don't think like we do we have morals and principles we have a code of conduct and we are British, so our standard is very high. The people I came into contact with do not have that. And I've sat with suicide bombers who didn't detonate. And to try and understand where their mind was coming from, why would they want to do this? And they believe that terror is the way forward. And what better way to cause absolute mass panic not necessarily killing a lot of people, but causing panic is putting a suicide bomb or bomber into a civilian target. We've seen it happen with in Birmingham, the music concert, Ariana Grande. 
Manchester. Manchester, sorry. I'll stand corrected there. Then it's, yeah, it just caused absolute carnage. Um, so to, to try and understand why someone would do that, short answer is I don't understand it because it's not something that we would ever do. But terror groups want to export terror. That's what they do. Um, the idea in Iraq and Afghanistan of beheading hostages, they do it to strike terror into the hearts of anybody and everybody. Um, so there's, to try and un understand, and believe me, I've spent decades trying to understand and trying to predict how these people operate. Not an easy thing to understand. Mm -hmm. What's it like speaking to a suicide bomber? Um, it was interesting. The guy in question, um, his name was Hamza in Polishaki. He was there because his suicide vest failed to de detonate when he walked to a police ch checkpoint. Um, it's quite an interesting, quite a funny story because on this occasion there wasn't anybody killed and he thought he was going to go to heaven and all, and all that and just say, uh, Allah. Problem he had is when he pressed the button to detonate it, it didn't go off. So the police at, at, at that checkpoint at that time uh, managed to pick themselves off the floor and they beat the living daylights out of him. So we, we, we used to send uh, Hamza in the prison some b batteries, some Duracell batteries, as a bit of a joke to say, uh, next time, mate, you know. Yeah, put some yeah. batteries yeah. in. Like the, do you see the evil in them? Are they quite calm and they believe what they're doing is the right thing to go and see Alan? What is it, 32 oh, wives yeah. or whatever they're going to get in this magical place? Like, can you see the the deranged method of thinking or the quite calm and, and actually saying but they actually just believe they've been conditioned to believe what they're believing excuse me it's quite an quite an interesting one because i've met i've met some senior ext extremists and dark is the only way i can describe them they just want to hurt anything and everything um, a lot of them have had run-ins with Western forces in the Middle East and Afghanistan in the past, personal grudges, personal vendettas, and they're using religion as an excuse. And they're trying to hide behind religion on personal vendettas or re revenge against either American troops or British. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have actually seen some guys who were press-ganged into becoming members of organisations, terrorist groups, or anti-suicide bombers. I have actually met a suicide bomber who was told if he didn't carry his attack out, his entire family would be killed. So in that kind of circumstance. I mean, but it, like I said, terror groups use terror on their own people as well as the t targets yeah. as well. For the British Army, like the, it's more everybody volunteers to go. They're not forced yeah. to do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, but again, with these other countries as well, they have lost children, family members. But then it's the get a like you say, Anarani Grande concert. Like, yeah. that was that's so sad. That make that does make you live in fear because you're thinking that can happen anywhere. Then yeah, but the important thing is we are British and. We do not live in fear. We do not cower 
to terrorism ever. We do not cower to terrorist groups ever, okay? Because the day we do is the day they have won. So I personally would never bow down. And I speak on behalf of a lot of the British people, a bit like yourself. Uh, we just know it ain't going to happen. They can bring all the evil that they want to this country, but it doesn't have a place or belong in this country. Mm. We have a great people here. We have a proud history. If they want to do their terrorist thing, religious thing, I'm not going to judge anyone on this one. Go back to your own country. Don't bring it here. Is that why they'd done a concert just a couple of weeks after that? Because it was it was full to the brim and it was that to make a stand that we're yeah. not scared and show no fear? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that makes sense then because yeah. a lot of people would have been thinking it's a bit too soon. Yeah. A lot of people would have thought, oh, we, we shouldn't do it. The, the, the day you think we shouldn't do something, which we would normally do in this country, like take the kids to school, go shopping in London, go shopping to a shopping mall, go and see a concert. The day you don't do any of that is the day the bad guys have won. So the way that I look at that is I would do it even more just to make a point. You've not won. This country has been through two world, world, world wars, okay? We're a proud nation. We're not going to bow down to fundamentalism. This will pass. In another 20 years, fundamentalism ain't going to be on the radar. It'll be something else. Yeah. What do you think of the future of this? With the machines that are now getting built, do you think there'll be armies? It's a difficult one because if you look from 2002 until now, it's only 20 years. The technology that has come about because of war, the technology has come on in leaps and bounds. Mm -hmm. It's a bit scary, really, if you think about what technology could be like in another 20 years. Yeah, I had a man on called Mo Goddard. He worked for Google. Right. They created the AI and he says in the next 10 years, the AI machines will be one billion times smarter than humans. Yeah. That's scary. How do we know that, that they can condition the minds of a human now with the things that you're seeing online? They can actually program you. And if they're so smart, they can either eliminate um, fear, they can eliminate bad in this world, or they can add to it where they actually control it, press buttons and create machines that can end lives and wars or whatever the countries like it's such as he says that won't go to that extreme like the terminator kind of thing where yeah. they're in control but how do you how can you judge that if this machine is one billion times smarter than any human how do, can you tell what way it will go well i think te technology is going to evolve anyway but i think the human side of of war human side of conflict a machine can't decide whether something is right or wrong if you come across a civilian on the battlefield who is injured the human thing to do is to treat them evac them out save the life of an innocent person you can't program that into a machine um i think we will end up with some other technology that no one's even thought of yet I think the wars of the future will be technology. Um, the, U the Ukraine, for instance, the 
the time of having mass tank battles, the amount of tanks, expenditures of multi-million pound tanks, being destroyed by a drone, a hundred thousand pound drone, if if that can destroy a multi-million pound tank multiple times a day. So I think technology has proven itself that it is going to have a very, a very prominent effect in the future. Future wars? Do I think there's going to be any massive um, conflicts? No, I don't. The war with Russia and Ukraine. I've spoke to Russians. I've spoke to people from Ukraine. Both of them believe what they're doing is yeah. is right. Like, how can you? How do you decide then? Like, what's right and what's wrong? If both believe they're right, I think the time will come, like in any conflict in history, the conflict will pass, and I think people should get to the table with a pen, not a sword. I think there's a time and a place for a sword, but the pen, it's important. Um, It's like Afghanistan, we do not want to see British soldiers on the ground again in, in, in Afghanistan. We don't want to recognise the Taliban. I get it. I understand it. A lot of you viewers will be of, of that mindset. But we need to talk to key members to stop the conflict escalating internally in Afghanistan and spilling over to neighbouring countries. The Ukraine's exactly the same as well. A peaceful solution will have to be found because a military solution is generally a short-term short-term gain. There's always a political solution to be found at the end of a conflict. A good example of this one, I'll say a good example, but an example is Northern Ireland. The British government was talking to the IRA for years in secret because they knew the conflict was going to come to an end at some point. So the Ukraine, the Ukraines and the Russians, at some point, they will end up having... A, they will end up sitting at a table talking. They will. Mm-hmm. Then what happens at that table then decides whether the conflict ends or it escalates and continues. What people have got to be aware of is don't interfere too much. In Support the innocent, definitely. Aid packages, definitely. Stop ethnic cleansing, definitely 100%. But we do not want to get dragged into a war. We're not prepared for it. We're not able to win it if we get involved in it. So we Britain needs to be very careful now. Mm-hmm. Being a British soldier, your first tour in Northern Ireland, can you understand why the Irish stood against the British Army? In history, because um, I've I, I read a lot about the history, about the conflict, years before I was even born, um, it's like the principle... You when you go into a country and try and govern that country by force, it will not work. You're going to get a resistance because you're in a country that you don't belong in. Yes, Northern Ireland's part of the United Kingdom, but I think mistakes were made in that conflict by all everyone concerned in it, by all sides. I'm glad that a fairly that that a peace settlement has been reached because it was not good turning on the television every day or doing tours out there 
um, British soldiers being killed. Um, so I'm glad that some kind of a peace and stability is in Northern Ireland. Yeah. Being a former soldier, I've seen war on several continents. I've seen human nature at its worst, but I've seen it at its best as well. And once the shooting stops, people can get to a table, um, good things could happen. Not can happen, could happen. But the political will has got to be there from all sides as well. Yeah, it's just sad that so much power in these men with suits, though, whether they're actually good souls or bad souls. There's a lot of light and dark in this world. And if people can just make a stand and make the right decision, the world can be a beautiful place. And mm. it's just hard that like, you've lived that life. Like men like yourself, like we've people in Britain, we live a good life here. But it is, we just take it for granted sometimes, like with some of the war zones you see. Even Ireland, I still worry for Ireland that yeah. things can start back at any minute. And I know both people on both sides, <clears throat> I agree with both what they're saying as well. But again, it's all just down to the mindset of we're all human. Like, are we ever going to live in peace? I don't think so, not in our lifetime. But maybe one day things can improve. But mm. it's just sad that other humans can other humans how is that for you like when you're in a war zone and you're hearing the screams and you're seeing people dead like how do you deal with that do you just become cold towards what's happening to humans some people can i personally can't every every war zone i've ever been in every war i've been involved in uh, being i've been um, working in a particular area I try and do as much humanitarian work as I possibly can. Sometimes I do a little bit more than what I'm supposed to. I wouldn't say disobey orders, but let's just say I push it so I can help as many people as I actually can because that helps me personally and the people who are with me. It keeps us grounded and it keeps us believing that there is good in a war zone. An example is, came across the aftermath of a suicide attack in Baghdad, and there was carnage everywhere. There was 50 or 60 bodies literally everywhere, and there was a girl there. So a couple of girls, actually. One of the girls died in, in my in my actual arms when I was trying to hold it together. She wasn't going to survive anyway, but tried to hold a little bit of comfort in a, in a dying seconds. The other girl managed to get into a vehicle. I acquisitioned the vehicle. wasn't my vehicle. Got her to the hospital. The girl's life was saved. Then I had to try and tracked down the guy who took the vehicle off to return the vehicle, which we actually did. So sometimes you've just got to, it's a, it's a personal thing. I try and balance it out. You've, you've, you've got to try and find your own way of dealing with it. If you shut everything off and become cold, it's only shut off for that period of time. It'll come back on you, mm -hmm. which is why I think a lot of guys now uh, suffering. A lot of young guys that we spoke about earlier who have PTSD, combat zones, they've seen some horrific things. Me personally, I've seen some horrific things in my time, but I try and balance it out, try and keep myself as grounded as what I can. A lot of the other guys that I work with do exactly the same. 
they work in combat zones, a lot of them are medics. So they, they work at the tip of the spear every day and they see dead people every day. But they also, in a time off in country, they go to orphanages to help out their children's orphanage. They go to the local hospitals to, to, to help out there as well. So they're trying to find their own little balance there. So I think everyone's an individual, how they come out of those sort of um, those sort of situations purely depends on the indiv 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 individual as well. How hard is that for you to see? Because I do a lot of homeless work back in Glasgow and a lot of the men on the street are ex-military. How hard is that to see men who was willing to die for their country but yet nobody's willing to die for them and they just let them suffer in pain just as if they're non-existent? Well, this is one of the things which I am extremely passionate about. Um, about five years ago, six years ago, it might have actually been, I found out about this. It came across my desk military homeless veterans in in england couldn't really find a great deal of accurate information on it so i thought let's see just how bad a problem this actually is so myself and a couple of colleagues we got dressed up as homeless guys went down for two weeks in london to live on the streets as homeless guys to actually find out and get a feel is this a big problem is it just an isolated case Turns out it was the tip of the iceberg. There is a problem with homeless veterans in the United Kingdom, um, through, through, throughout the United Kingdom. And my belief is no member of our services should be homeless or without a roof over their head or without food in their belly. Every member of our services should have a right to that and the government has done some good work, it could do a lot, a lot more. Now we have a veterans minister in government. I know that there is plans in the near future to help to start to address a lot of the situations with veteran, um, homeless veterans in the UK and with veterans who are suffering from PTSD as well. Just because they're not in the military anymore, the military still has a duty of care, whether it's a year after their service is finished or 20 years after the services have finished. Because we send these young men and women off to war zones to fight this country's wars. We have a moral obligation when they return to this country. We have a, we have a solid duty of care. So I think the government should do a lot more. That's my opinion. And that is, I hope I can speak on the entire veteran community in the United Kingdom when I say this needs to be addressed by the Prime Minister and the Veterans Minister. Some new laws need to be passed that protect our veterans. That's my opinion. Yeah, I agree also. What's the worst thing you've ever seen in war? Uh, well, the worst thing is I was with, it was in Iraq 2003. I was with a 101st Airborne Division. I was a combat for, 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 photographer. And I was with the military police one evening and we got called to a house downtown 
puzzle. And it's turned up, and the official MP photographer at the time, forensic photographer, came out of this house and he wouldn't go back in it. And we didn't quite know why, why what was going on. Turns out an entire family, including young children, had been executed in this house for working alongside the American forces. The photographer wasn't able to go in because he was in tatters. So I had my camera embedded photographer, so I actually went in and took all the photographs to be used as evidence as war crimes. Now, that photographing, going in to that house, these bodies have been in there about three or four days in the blazing heat. This is the, the peak of the summer in Iraq. The floor of this down, downstairs where they were all killed was about an inch and a half of blood. It's the only way I can describe it without going into too much detail. So you were having to stand in body fluid and blood just to get into the actual room. I think it was about eight or nine members of this family had all been killed in one room. That was pretty much the worst experience I've ever had. But trust me, I didn't want to go, go in that room. But I knew how important it was to get the photographs before the bodies were moved or anything because it could be used to help track down who had done this. It was Al-Qaeda had killed them. So do I re re regret going into that house? Yes, because it was the worst thing I've ever seen and that lives with me nearly every day now. But it was used and we were able to track down who did it and they were brought to justice as well. How do you deal with that? Can you speak to people with that? Or do you, again, do you just go on with the job? Personally, I just get on with the job. Um, unless you've been there, seen it, got the T-shirt, I think a lot of people wouldn't understand it. That's actually the first time I've ever mentioned that, ever, on the camera. Um, but fair, I think it's, I think it's play, important. Because it can bring back a lot of emotion. It brings back a lot of emotion, but what I find is, and a lot of veterans will um, understand this, if I smell a certain smell, it takes me back there instantly. I could be in a supermarket and I smell something. It puts me right back in that room again. And it takes me a little while just to compose myself, push it to one side, you're safe, you're not there, it's past, and you move on. I got closure with it because I helped track down the people who were responsible and they were brought to a swift justice. So I know that is not an open chapter and they won't be able to do that to anybody else ever again. So, but a lot of soldiers are exactly the same. You can smell something or you hear something and it triggers it. It's like a trigger is the only way I can describe it. Um, I can't speak to anyone about 99% of any of this because they wouldn't understand, and I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't even know how to put it into words. To me, it was just a job. Job done, life saved, move on. If I pondered over every single bad thing that I've seen or every single bad thing I've experienced, 
I think I would be being tattered. But you you use it, you make yourself stronger. What doesn't kill you will make you stronger and you use the experience. And what I find is I'm very good at talking to other veterans who have been through similar things because I've been there, I've seen it, I've done it. So I can help coach some of the younger guys now with PTSD. Um, I'm not a qualified coach, I'm not saying I am, but occasionally one of the lads will pop round, we'll have a brew if he's having a bad day and we'll just have a chat. And I'll just say, I'm going through it as well, mate. We all go through bad bad days. I get bad bad days as well. But what the veterans out there have got to understand is you're not alone. Pick up the phone, speak to one of the boys you know, get on social media, send a message to one of your mates, he'll nip round for a brew and have a chat. The amount of soldiers who are committing or service personnel, both in the United Kingdom and in the United States, the numbers that are committing suicide is phenomenal. Absolutely disgusting how large a number it is. In in America, it is mind-blowing. Um, so as I said, the government has got a duty of, of care here. But there is some incredible little private charities and groupings that do some phenomenal work with hardly any budget. And if it wasn't for the little groups of veterans out there and sub, sub, supporters of the veterans as, as well, then I think the death toll would be d double of w w w what it is now. So I think the government need to roll up the sleeves and actually help. So we'll touch on now when you get captured, 190 days, beaten... I don't know if you're going to make it or not. Like, how did that start? Well, that that started. Um, backstory was I've uh, been re retired from operations, both military and intelligence, for over ten years now. All of a sudden, a year ago, I started getting telephone calls from brigadier generals, colonels, some very senior members of the Afghan establishment. So some of these people I know like very very well. They're my close friends. Also got contacted by my former interpreters, my drivers, and they were panicking. They were stuck in Afghanistan. They couldn't get out. It's a year anniversary now, but you think about a year ago, it was absolute chaos in Afghanistan. Everyone thought there was going to be mass executions. Just not good. So everyone was scrambling to get out of Afghanistan. Unfortunately, not everyone was able to get out of Afghanistan. I decided to go and help get some of the families out that I actually knew. The families in question had young children, some of them as young as two, four, six, and eight years old. And the idea was go out there for a couple of months, keep it quiet, get as many people out as we can, and that was it. Then it turned out that the numbers were phenomenal. So we ended up staying there a lot longer. Um, I was there for nine months in total in Afghanistan for th three months over the evacuation. Then after three months, just as an absolute fluke, one morning I was picked up by literally myself and my colleague were looking at a, at a house that we were thinking about renting. Some another Taliban tribe came up to us, all carrying AK forties, heavens, wanted to see our identification, who who we actually were. 
pulled out my British passport. I had an entry stamp in there as well. So I was in the country 100% perfectly clean. We had a letter of the Chambers of Commerce, other identification as well, all 100% real, spot on. So there shouldn't have been any problems there. They wanted us to accompany them to their intelligence headquarters in Kabul, which was literally around the corner at this point. So we weren't arrested. So we voluntarily accompanied them to their to their headquarters to answer any other questions. And basically, after a couple of hours, we thought they're going to check the ID, make sure it's real. I, I understand that. Um, we got put in a holding cell, expected to be there a couple of hours. 190 days later, we were released. Uh, we were taken to the airport, put, put onto a plane and... We were able to leave Afghanistan, 190 days in an underground Taliban interrogation centre. <clears throat> that was emotional. Um, they didn't have a clue who I was for the first two two weeks. We just got pulled because we had British passports and they wanted to get some hostages. So we were actually political hostages. Once they, an element within the t t Taliban, I'll call it, a more extremist element within the Taliban found out who I actually was. Then it got very interesting at that point because the interrogator had had a running with British soldiers years earlier in the South Afghanistan. So he hated anything that was British military or anything. And me being a form of veteran and a lot of the work I've done, um, it didn't help it. So I ended up getting... Um, quite badly beaten or by this particular guy. One well, one of the times I was um, I was given a bit of an hard time, five Taliban handcuffed me, tied my legs together, pinned me to the floor, removed my shoes and uh, socks, whipped the bottom of, of my feet many, many times uh, with a hardened rubber hose, uh, which ended up in nerve damage. Um, at the same time, I was being kicked repeatedly in the ribs, which ended up with six cracked ribs, um, kidney, bruised kidneys and a kidney infection as, as, as well. That was one of the times. So they're asking me some really random, stupid questions. I didn't have any relevance at all. Um, but the guy was very inexperienced, the guy who was um, interrogating me at that time. And to be honest, he was just a bit of a, he, it, it, it was a personal vendetta. He saw me as being British, former soldier. He wanted to hit out at something. I was what he hit out at. Um, didn't actually help me myself a few times because everyone knows you don't antagonise your interrogator. I made the mistake of actually telling him what I actually thought of him. Called him a little boy. At one point, I told him during one of the interrogations, do you want me to go to the shop and get you some some crayons? And I'll use little words so you understand it. That got me a kick in. I felt good about it because it pissed him right off. But I thought, if you're going to give me an hard time, boy, you're going to get it and all. So, uh, yeah. Did you ever fear that you would be killed? Honestly, yeah. I thought there was a couple of times the one that might want to um, sort of execute me. There was one of the times where I told me interrogate you, if you want to kill me, to do it, at least have the balls to do it yourself. Take me outside and you can shoot me at the, and in the back of the head, but you got to do it yourself. If you want to talk the game, you're going to be able to do it as well. Again, he had a bit of a meltdown and I got a kick in for that as well.
Why didn't they kill you? Not sure. I'll be on. I'll be. I'll be honest with you. Um, but I've also got some um, some connections out there as well. So once my connections actually realised it was me in that underground interrogation centre, the beatings and the ill treatment abruptly ended, and I was trapped amicably for the next couple of months while I was actually in there. Um, all, all of us were given a bit of an time. We, we all got told at one point, we're looking at a 40-year prison sentence in that cell, or we were going to be taken outside and, and hung. Um, so a couple of boys didn't handle that well. There was five other British nationals who, who were actually in that underground facility as well, and one American. All of us deal with things in our own way. Um, being a former soldier, I've got a very dark sense of humour. So I just thought, well, they haven't killed us yet. You roll up your sleeves, you crack on with it. If you go the other way and think, oh, my God, I'm going to get killed tomorrow every day, you fall apart. Then you're, you, you, you're no good to yourself. Then you're no good to anyone else as well. So in, in that sort of environment, you're literally just... You stay switched on, you roll up your sleeves, you keep a sense of humour and you crack on with it. What sort of food were you getting? Rice. A lot of rice. You must have lost a lot of weight. I went in, I was 98 kilo. I came out, I was just over 70. So, But I put a bit on now because I've been eating everything inside. You're making up for that? Yeah. You're a tough bastard, mate. Your mindset is tough. Like That's where... The cream of the crop when you you say the British are the elite. They are the elite because up here there's something wired up wrong. I miss with like a lot I know a lot of the Scottish past like special forces courses as well, because they're a little fucking tough. But like, when you look at the British from the army, they're such they're so tough that like, every man I've interviewed that's been in the army on this podcast, you can just see that they're, they're tough. You can also see a, they're broken as well with the things that they've seen, the things that they've achieved. Mm. But the toughness, the mental toughness, like like you could have went in anywhere and you'd have survived but just because of that something in your mind that just doesn't make you break like where did you get that from like the, the that toughness like no nothing's breaking me was that come from a kid or is it as you got older i think it i think it yeah i think it came out when when i was a kid because i was quiet when i was at school i was one of the shy ones um not very confident well when when i was at, at, at school as well but i just thought I think I think I've always had it. I think I got it off me dad, me mum as well, me grandma and me granddad as well. It's just you don't give up. Nothing's impossible, and this too shall pass. Doesn't matter how bad a situation you're having on one particular day. The next day could be a hundred percent better. So all you do is you crack on with it. Plus. I'm a little bit arrogant, and I think that's because I was in the Paris. I think you've got to be a little bit arrogant and believe in yourself to throw yourself out of a perfectly serviceable aircraft. It ain't the natural thing to do. So, and I think that being a little bit arrogant, it works well. And when you're in very dark life and death situations, you've got two choices. You can either curl up in the corner, cry and die, or you stand up, you roll up your sleeves, you just give them a big smile and you get on with it. And I told all the guys I was, I was with, 
the other British national, as I said, how you act right now at this moment in time will be how you will be remembered for being in here. And a lot of the guys are saying, how can you be so happy all the time? They might take us outside tomorrow and hang us or take you outside and torture you again. And I went, yeah, and? No point pondering on it. It's going to happen. It's, it's, it's going to happen, is it? And I told the boys, just remember how you act now. In a year's time, after you're out, after you've been released, you'll look back at this and go, yeah, I handle that, I handle that well. So the way, I, the way I look at any situation I've ever been in, and I've got no regrets at all, because if I ever changed anything in my life, it wouldn't have made me the person I am now. And I brought a lot of good into this world, and I've saved a lot of lives as well. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't have the mentality that I've actually that I've actually got now. What was the daily routine like when you were captured? Daily routine in an underground cell for 23 and a half hours every day. No natural sunlight in a room three metres by three metres. Alone? Uh, I was in solitary confinement for 70 days. Then I got moved back into the cell with a couple of the other, other Brits. Oh, one of them's an old friend of mine. I got moved out of solitary because my interrogator came downstairs um, thinking I didn't want to be in solitary. And I turned around to him and I said, no, I don't want to go in with the others. I want to stay here. I, I like it in here. And it flipped him out. <laughs> then he said, you're not staying in here. Mind fucked so him. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> mate. He had a meltdown at this point. I said, why would I want to go in now? I've got more space in here. Mm -hmm. I get better food. I like it here. I just had a big smile on my face. And it flipped him. He just didn't know how to handle that. So then he said, right, get him in with, with the other English guys. So, yeah. How many of the Taliban were there? Oof, um, a lot of them. Uh, we were, we had four floors above us of Taliban. So we had a lot of uh, guards, but the guards were generally okay. They were just young guys who needed a job and they got brought in as, as guards. Never a plan to try and escape? The problem, in, interesting, you're the first person who's ever actually asked me about that. The problem, and the other guys will confirm this, wouldn't have been escaping. Me and my colleague have over 65 joint years experience in Afghanistan. So if we got out of that building, we would have just melted. The problem would have been we would have to take everyone else, all the other British nationals with us. And a couple of them didn't have an awful lot of experience. No language skills. They were dressed as Westerners. They just would have got picked up instantly. So could we have escaped? Absolutely. Not a problem at all. But if we had done, chances are a couple of the other hostages might have accidentally been killed. So we, we made a decision to actually stay as a grouping. And when did the media get hold of this? My name wasn't released until I returned to England. I've got to say a thank you to the Foreign Office for doing this. Um, I have had a running in the past with the Foreign Office 10 years ago, 12 years ago, but how they have acted over the past year 
towards myself and my family has been incredible. Um, they have helped pro protect my family, keep my name out of the press, and make sure the press do not end up on my family's doorstep. So when I returned to England, I was asked, do I still want my, my name not in the actual press? I had to make a decision because not many people knew I was actually in Afghanistan. No one knew, no one really knew that I was a hostage over there. But inquiries were being made. I found out that the editors of pretty much every news organisation had my name, but they wouldn't release it to the public unless I give permission. Um, so I made the decision to go public because then I can say what happened, where I've been, why I was there. We were there for the ev evacuation and we actually helped over 400 families and ch children. We moved them to safety or got them out of the country. So yeah. Why was on the rescue mission? There was one. It was put on hold. Why? I'm not going to talk about, about that at this interview. I think it was the right decision. I think um, anyone going in to get us would have caused a lot of issues, given the fact there's over 700 British nationals still in country. A lot of them cannot get out of Afghanistan. So using force to get us out or a private rescue mission or any other rescue mission, it would have escalated and caused a lot of problems. And I did not want to be responsible for the deaths of a lot of people if people had came in to get us out. So I think the diplomatic option was the best option. And myself and my colleagues who were hostages, we helped work with the Foreign Office to identify the right members of the Taliban they had to speak to. Then after we had identified the right members in the foreign ministry, the British the British consular or the foreign office at that point were able to talk to the right people to secure our release with the help of seven other countries, including the President of the United States, who actually done a official White House press statement demanding that the British nationals be released as well. Mm -hmm. How was it then going through that? Because I know the Taliban were in contact with your missus, is that correct? Yep, the, the, this is um, an unusual one. My missus, um, girlfriend, recorded all of the telephone conversations that she had with the member of the Taliban who was holding me. It turned out this guy was also the guy who was interrogating me. He was the guy who tortured me. And for my missus to have direct contact with her is very unusual. Normally it's governments who deal with the hostage situation. Um, with my missus being a former job that she used to have, very experienced. So she was able to put her emotion to one side, deal with the facts of the situation. And she was dealing directly and she was working with and helping the foreign office as well. That must have put her mind at ease about knowing that you were still alive then. Yeah, after the first couple of months, she asked for proof of proof of life. She got proof of life. I spoke to her on the telephone. We're both experienced enough to actually know key words and phrases to actually use. 
we use them, which means I was alive under duress, situation not good, and speak to the official diplomatic channels to get us all out. Do not look at going kinetic. So we were not interested in a rescue mission unless our circumstances did change. How hard How hard was that decision, knowing that other people may be scared there, thinking they're going to die there, to then, listen, hold back the rescue because you're then thinking the uproar it can cause? Like, was that a big decision or was it an easy decision to make? That was the... Some of my friends wanted to come and get me out. I thank all of them, and I'll be buying you all the beer in, in, in Scotland when, when, when I'm up there next. <laughs> and, um, yeah, the Airborne Brotherhood is absolute. You never leave a man behind. Mm -hmm. So a lot of um, a lot of former army guys wanted to come and uh, get us. But we said, hang fire at this moment in time. Mm -hmm. uh, we knew a diplomatic solution could happen. And that wasn't just on what we were thinking. It's what we were s seeing when we were there. I was in daily contact and in talks every other day with senior members of the Taliban. I used to go upstairs from for my underground cell, sit and drink tea with the head of Afghan intelligence, senior members of the Afghan government, all members of the Taliban, all who spoke perfect English. A lot of them were educated in England as well. So I kind of was getting the feeling after the whole beating, torturing thing had calmed down, that we could actually deal with this in a diplomatic way, given the fact of we were only six British nationals, one American. There is hundreds of British nationals there. So our thought process was we need to do this in a diplomatic way, in a good way and a clean way, because if we don't, the repercussions on the rest of the British nationals in country could be horrendous. So what? I'm happy to say it was okay. What was it like speaking to the high end of the Taliban? Were you surprised how educated they were? No, because I've had a lot of dealings with, with these in, in, in individuals in the past. Um, there's, It's a bit of a strange one because up until recently they were classed as the enemy. Then all of a sudden, the enemy is now the government of a country. And you've got to speak to that government to be able to do humanitarian missions. So right or wrong or what you want to do, you've got to, you've got to speak to them. It is surreal just to sit across from the table from a senior Taliban commander who I knew was in Helmand, who I knew was helping to orchestrate attack and kill British soldiers. The personal part of me, it, it, it was angry because this guy had killed a lot of our soldiers. So personally, I didn't want to be there. Didn't even want to be in the room with this guy. But the professional side of me, I had to put the personal on one side, think professional, put your professional cap on, speak to, speak to this guy, just straight, short, sharp, straight to the point. And he was short, sharp, straight to the point, but back as well. Then we built up a little bit of a rapport. Then it went from me asking for better con conditions for myself and the other uh, the other guys, because I didn't want to be our our like representative or the spokesman. We're not interested in it. It kind of just happened. So I ended up helping to get better con conditions for all of us, 
it took a lot of time. So some of the other guys were asking as well. We used to write a note and a letter, get it up to the top top guy as well. But I was the only guy who got taken out of his cell late at night, taken upstairs through cup of tea to, to meet all the high hockey there. So I was able to make sure that there was no more ill treatment or torture on anyone else there as well. That was important because a couple of the guys who I was with weren't handling it well. Um, and I really didn't want to be carrying out a body bag when we got released. So I wanted all of us out alive, all of us return our families. Is it a risk if one of them crumble and crack and try and escape or just fold where then everybody's lives gets put in risk? Are yeah. you trying to calm that situation? Look fucking relaxed. That Absolutely. 100%. Um, yeah. Um, some of the guys dealt with it better than what others did. But you're in there, you're part of a team, you pull together. If one of you is having a bad day, you help to pick him up. Mm -hmm. It's just one of those one of those th things. So when you're held captive for over six months, and then you, what was the day you found out you were getting out? Was it a build up to it, or was it just let like, you go? Well, it, 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 this was quite this was quite amusing. This is going to go down as one of those di diaries. <laughs> um, me colleague in the same cell as me was taken upstairs. He was told politely, "You're going to leave tomorrow to to work clock." Um, no problems at all. He shook the interrogator's hand. He gets put in the next room. I get brought back upstairs. My interrogator's there. And me and this guy just didn't get on, mate. All right. Um, he tried to break me every way he could and he couldn't. All right. And I was inside of his head as well. And it went a bit wrong. He was supposed to tell me I was being released the next day. But he started the conversation having a go at me, my country, calling British soldiers not nice things. So I turned around and told him to grow up, stop being a little child. And I told him again what I thought of him. Unbeknown to me, he was about to tell me I was being released two o'clock the next day. He then decides to throw everything off the table, smash some things against a wall, um, get a little bit angry. So I actually squared up, first time I ever did this, I squared up nose to nose with me interrogator and his bodyguard never stepped in why to stop it because his bodyguard i felt out found out later did not approve of him didn't want to be his bodyguard and he was kind of itching that i was gonna punch fuck i was him. gonna do something <laughs> to him yeah but i didn't but then the bodyguard just very 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 softly tapped me on the shoulder asked me to have a seat and I, I did because the bodyguard I got on with this guy. He, he was he was uh, he was he was he was a young guy, but he he was as good as what you can get in that situation. He tapped me on the shoulder. I had a seat. He went out. He got me a glass of water, brought it in. The interrogator thought it was for him, and it wasn't. It was it, it was f for me. The interrogator then goes like red in the face, steam coming out of his ears, trying to point at me, saying. You're not leaving. Your friend is leaving tomorrow at two o'clock, but you're going to stay here. And he thought I was going to be upset about this and kicked off. All they did was finish me water, put the glass down, stood up, walked over to the guy again and said, thank you for letting my colleagues go. I really appreciate that. And I look forward to spending some more quality time, just me and you. 
and I walked out and I've never spoken to or seen that that guy again. But his head came off and span around a few times mm. at that point, I think. So you're very calculated with the mind and how to get into, under people's skin. Is that, do you think that's why you're still alive as well? Because I'm not sure, because really that was most probably one of the stupidest things I've ever done. But even then, because <laughs> so of the, I've, I've yeah, got to be honest about that. You don't like these like. guys in their power. I think even I think even to some degree, even though their heads are getting spin, I still think they would respect it that people haven't broken or backing down and are still willing to stand and fight or argue or not be intimidated. Like, I think I think I think it's important if you show. Weakness. Any sign of weakness, they will jump all over you. And this guy, he broke my body, but he couldn't break my mind and he couldn't break my spirit. That's unbreakable. Mm -hmm. And he tried. And he couldn't understand why he couldn't break us. Um, he did He did manage to break one of the others, but that's, that's one of those things. It happens. Um, but me personally, absolutely no chance in it mm -hmm. at all. Um, and what was weird was when I was, I wasn't deported. I was given a exit stamp in my passport, and I got my passport back. And I was the only British hostage to get my sterling, my sterling watch back, my passport, my ring, my wallet, all my cards, driving license. I got everything back. And the senior member of the Taliban gave me that back and said, "That is." respect from one soldier to another the other hostages asked for their gear back and they were told no so i thought that was quite an interesting dynamic mm -hmm. to actually be given even the british embassy had uh, had issued me with a temporary emergency passport thinking i would never get my passport back then when i found out i did get my passport back they were very surprised at that Mm -hmm. uh, but I thought the watch and the passport and my wallet with all, even the money in my wallet was still there as well. They didn't steal anything. What was it like getting home? Were you emotional? Getting home was... You don't really seem an emotional man though. But oh, good God, I am. I are am. you? I you am. just come across as a stone-cold yeah. fucking madman who just, <laughs> who's, like if you're getting into war, if you're, if you're having a team around you you'd want you in that team because of the cool calm collective nature of listen don't fucking break let's stand that hmm. did you get emotional then yeah um no uh, did you not <laughs> no it was um i got in a bit of trouble for this because the again the foreign office really good job all the hostages were brought back to heathrow airport in on a commercial flight we then were met as we got off the plane and we were ushered through the actual airport. We didn't go through the normal channels. We were then put in a private room, each of us individually, so we can meet our families as like a reunion. Um, some of the families were all emotional and teary. Um, I just walked in the room, saw me, missus, and went, uh, have, you, have you missed me? And she was like, hello. I went, I was a gun. She went, you better give me a bit of an ugly. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, all right, darling, yeah. all right, all right. So, yeah, it was great. But it was funny because then me, mate, who, who I was actually with, his wife came up to me and she just burst into tears. Hmm. And I went, and that set me off a little bit. And yeah, I thought, yeah. oh, this is getting a bit emotional. It was a, there was a lot of d dust in the in, in the actual air at that point. Yeah. Then uh, gave me missus a big hug, had a chat, introduced her to the other 
the other guys, the other hostages, um, said thank you to the foreign office. Then they got us out the back door of the um, of the airport as well. How do you get back into normal life then after going through such torment and misery? E even before that, anyway, you'd have seen a lot of shit you might have, you probably struggled with, but then being tortured and then not knowing if you're going to be head chopped off or killed. But how do you then get back into normal society? Is that hard? Um, it's taken a while because I picked up a lot of injuries. I ended up going to Cambridge, um, to the hospital in Cambridge to get me ribs done, CAT scans, um, all the scans you could possibly think of on my body. Apparently, I still had concussion. Um, yeah, um, I was quite su uh, surprised at that diagnosis. Couldn't figure out how I managed to still have concussion after that time. But the specialist at Cambridge had said, obviously, you've taken a strike to the back of the head. And thinking back when I was interrogated, yeah, I actually did. But I didn't think that that, that much of it. Um, adapting back into civilian, into the civilian world again. All you've got to do is you put it down as experience. It's happened. Um it was a bad experience. It was an educational experience, but you can't dwell on it. Um, alive, I will heal. My injuries will heal. Um, and the mind can be a strong thing. If you ponder too, too much on it, it'll tr trash you. So my point of view is get back, get back into a normal routine. I've got kids, got me, got me missus. I've got a cat as well. So I just kind of settled back into life. But the important thing is not to try and run before you can actually walk. And I've told the other guys, don't just take a week, take a month or two months. Relax back into life again. Your body's been through a lot. Your mind's been through a lot as well. When you go through a situation that you think you're not going to survive, it generally will change you a little bit, if not a lot. But I just kind of get get on with what I do. I'm writing a book about all this out on the 8th of September in the hope that a lot of people who have been through a lot of traumatic experiences can read it and actually learn from it. And it's a positive book. It's more like positive attitude, your positive thinking, your can-do attitude. And it's important you never give up, even on the darkest of days when you think, we are really screwed here. And there was a particular day where I thought, this might not end well here. Uh, that My negative lasted for about a minute. And I thought, nah, I'm not dying here. I've got better th things to do. How does it make you feel talking about all this? Um, emotional. But I'm talking about it in the hope that my experience can help other veterans or it could inspire other people to do what I do, or when people are thinking about curling up in the corner, don't. Stand up, be proud, roll up your sleeves and crack on. Yeah, you've got books out before. Can we touch on these for people to take a look and maybe try and buy some if they're interested? Yeah, if anyone wants to know anything about me, um, I'm, I'm, I'm on the internet, I'm all over the internet. I've got a webpage, www.anthonymalone.me.uk. All my books are on there. Um, it's the experiences that, that I had in originally in Afghanistan, then Iraq, Syria, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia some of my African stuffs in there, then me me new book on a on a bound rogue warrior part three is out on the eighth of September. Um, they weren't actually meant to be commercial books originally, 
part one, one and two are actually written as Aiden Benoit's. So they're not polished because uh, they were not meant to be commercially. I've actually rewritten them myself. So it's my words, my, my photographs, my documents in there. And I just want people to read it and learn from it. Because like I said, 32 years experience within the military and hostile, hostile environments. If anyone can learn this one little thing out of them, great. Yeah. Happy days. What's your plans for the future? Plans for the, for the future? I'm quite, oh, quite open on that. Um, there is rumours that some production companies have, have spoken to me. Um, and we will see maybe a f f film could be made on me books and hopefully that again will benefit military v veterans spending time with me kids me missus me cat um, that's basically me um, I've actually been put I'm quite honoured actually I've been nominated and shortlisted for the English Military Veteran Awards um, and I've been put forward as Inspiration of, of the Year Award and Life Achievement Award, given the fact I'm 50 years old. I'm not quite sure how to think of that one. <laughs> uh, I'm not as old as that. Uh -huh. But um, no, I'm honoured and privileged to have even been considered. It was a bit of a sh shock, actually, because I've been away mm -hmm. for like nine months in Afghanistan. I've come back to that. So, but if I can help represent um, British military veterans in a positive way, I actually will. For anybody watching, brother, that's maybe in the struggle right now, what advice would you have for them? Any veterans going through a hard time at this moment, right now, you're not you're not alone out there. Pick up the phone, pick up the dog and bone, speak to one of your mates, one of your former team. <coughs> All of us go through bad times. Everyone does. I do. Pick up the phone, speak to the boys, and you'd be surprised that they might be thinking exactly the same. It's important, especially if you've had a couple of drinks, don't get yourself down. And don't be hanging around your house or inside. Get your boots on, get your trainers on, get outside, do a bit of exercise. Fitness wins, and you'll feel a lot better for yourself as well. And for everyone else out there, take care, stay safe. And for, for coming on today and telling your story, brother, it's Thank extraordinary. You. Fair play to you as well. You're a very fair man who sees both sides and you, you, you're not clearly just all one-sided. You see the world a bit differently, but for your work and for surviving the things that you've done, the lives that you've saved, I take my heart off to you and I've got nothing but respect for you. I wish all the best for the future. Good luck, brother, and God bless. Thank you very much. Thanks for show. Bye. Podcast Network.